This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The U.S. Transportation Security Administration, TSA, screens over 2 million passengers every day. That number is increasing rapidly as the terrorist threats the nation face grow increasingly complex and diffuse. Terrorists have long viewed the transportation sector, particularly aviation, as a leading target for attack or exploitation. That focus has not abated. This challenging threat environment frames all of TSA's operations and its mission to protect the nation's transportation systems to ensure freedom of movement for people and commerce. But TSA must take on serious and significant issues that go to the heart of its mission, such challenges as increasing passenger volume, ensuring efficient screening of travelers, while maintaining focus on effective security. What are the greatest threats and challenges facing TSA in the next few years? What has TSA done to be more efficient and effective in meeting its mission? And how is TSA pursuing innovative security strategies? We'll explore these questions and so much more with the recent TSA administrator, Peter Neffinger. Peter, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks very much, Michael. Peter, would you provide us with a brief overview of the history and evolving mission of the U.S. Transportation Security Administration, TSA? Well, as you know, TSA was uh, founded uh, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. So it was uh, November 19th of 2001, as a matter of fact, is when TSA came into existence. Uh, it was it was then part of the Federal Aviation Administration uh, in the Department of Transportation, moved over to DHS in 2003 when DHS was created. But it was specifically tasked with, with turning into a federal responsibility the security of um, airports in the aviation sector and ultimately the entire transportation sector of the United States. How is it organized? Can you give us a sense of your, your, your last budget? How many folks work for you and what's your geographical footprint? Well, we're just, uh, we're just, a, just shy of 60,000 people total in the organization, uh, of which about 42,000 are uh, what we call transportation security officers. That's the uniformed workforce that you see in the airports. About a seven. $7.6 billion budget this past year, uh, of which about $3.2 billion is provided uh, by fees that are charged on airline tickets, and then the remainder is appropriated um, uh, from, the, from the Congress. And, um, and we're distributed uh, across 450 airports in the United States. So 450 airports provide commercial service of some sort in the U.S. So we're, we're throughout the continental U.S., uh, and we are uh, at, in the territories. Uh, in uh, Alaska, Hawaii, and then we have a footprint in 28 countries around the world. I want to get a sense of your responsibilities and duties. 
as the administrator of TSA. Uh, what's a day in the life of an administrator? Uh, and how do you support the overall mission of the department? Oh, good question. Well, you're, you're welcome to follow me someday. You'll probably <laughs> you'll, ne- you'll never want to do it again. But <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there's a there's sort of a series of things that you do every day. I start every day with an intelligence briefing. Uh, we have uh, uh, people uh, often don't realize that uh, first and foremost, uh, TSA is an intelligence agency because you have to understand where the threat's coming from, what the threat is, in order to begin to think about how you counter that threat in the world of work that we have. So I start every day with an intelligence briefing and, and then a general quick meeting, an operations meeting, you know, what happened over the past 24 hours, what we see coming over the next 24 hours. So tactically focused, but, but to make sure kind of things are on track. And then, uh, and then it's, uh, the, the day can vary. Uh, I, I do a lot of interagency work, uh, both within the Department of Homeland Security as well as across the government. Uh, I'm typically um, working with the national security staff, uh, so I'm usually um, uh, at meetings up at the White House a couple times a week uh, on you know issues with respect to transportation security, and then a lot of time on the phone with our partners. Uh, so I uh, I'll meet with uh, both the associations that represent airlines and airports and transit a- agencies and so transit companies and so forth, as well as the uh, the individual companies and, and airlines themselves. So I might be on the phone with a chief operating officer or, or a CEO. And all of that is designed to try to understand, are we paying attention to the right things every day? Uh, are we moving that information out to the people, our stakeholders? And, uh, and how are we doing at man- managing the operation of the business every day? It's got to be quite challenging. And, and so the next question I really wanted the, to talk to you about is if you could tell us you know, what are some of the top management challenges you face uh, or, or faced as an administrator, and how have you sought to address them? Well, as you know, when I, when I came in, uh, I, actually, I went through two confirmation hearings. I, we have two committees of jurisdiction uh, over TSA, and I, I appeared before the Commerce Committee. There was about a three-week gap, and then I was appearing before the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Between that two committee hearings was the uh, leak of the Inspector General's report uh, in May of 2015, which suggested that TSA wasn't doing its job very well. Uh, so that dramatically changed some of those initial management challenges. So initially, it was really to understand, first of all, what actually happened. Uh, without, I won't go into a lot of detail on that, but, uh, but, but if you recall, um, Inspector General testers were able to get things through the checkpoint that shouldn't have gotten through. And so the first question was, was actually, what actually happened? And then how systemic were the problems that generated those? And, um, and no surprise, you find that they are systemic problems, typically, when you have a system failure like that. Uh, I always tell, say that it's generally not the people who fail. It's the system that you've designed for the people to operate in that fails them. And then they, because people do what systems tell them to do. Yeah. We did a, a pretty deep dive. So the first challenge was to find that. And then also the, the wrapping around that was this very real loss of public confidence. So how do, you, how do you rapidly reassure the public, the traveling public, that you can actually protect them? Well, at the same time, uh, work with what was arguably a, a traumatized workforce and a demoralized workforce uh, because of these failures and, and, and the resultant uh, public scrutiny. So that consumed about the first six months or so. Uh, very rewarding, by the way, in, in, in retrospect, because we, we actually found lots of things that we could improve. And then that imbank- began to inform the bigger strategic picture of, well, so what where do we need to go with TSA? What are some of the big issues that we could pay attention to? So the management challenges was uh, you come into a workforce that, um, that's been um, called out in a pretty severe terms publicly. 
uh, that is being questioned for its ability to do its job. Uh, you've got a leadership that feels as if they failed. Uh, and uh, so you've got to figure out how do, how, do I, how do I actually get all of those people out of trauma yeah. so, we can act, so we can fix the system. Yeah. It was interesting. So what – maybe you kind of hinted at it just now, but what, what surprised you most during your tenure? It was, uh, it was a surprise to find that we had these leaked IG reports. <laughs> I, I think what surprised me most was the um, – first of all, the, the scope of the mission. Uh, and I, I say that not, not because I wasn't aware that TSA existed, but uh, you know, I don't think uh, – until you actually come into an organization, it's hard to know exactly what they do. You know, in retrospect, when I think about protecting the transportation system of the nation – uh, that's a that's a phenomenal scope of responsibility. And the other thing that surprised me was the depth of talent that really does exist within the agency uh, that is not seen by the public. We're, to some extent, the retail face of government. And we're often a retail store that people don't want to have to shop in. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you've got to come through us. You know, to, yeah. <laughs> but that almost overwhelms um, the, uh, the uh, or, or, or really masks the vision of what the agency is behind that. Although it's the largest face of the organization, it's a, it's it's a, just a component of this of a very big. So that was what surprised me most was to realize how little I understood about what TSA's mission really was across the board. Oh, you know, you come from a very distinguished career in the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, Vice Admiral, and so leadership is very important. Semper paratus, always ready, right? So, what makes an effective leader? Uh, and perhaps you could illustrate for us some of your leadership principles, and more importantly, who influenced your leadership style? First, uh, let me just tell you generally how I think about people. Uh, it goes back to that comment I made about uh, systems failing people. I really do believe that, the, that almost everybody who has a job comes to work to do the job well. You know, isn't it? There, there are probably a few people out there that go, I'm going to wake up and really mess my job up today. But they're, they're, <laughs> they're few and far between, you know. And so... I look for ways to help people succeed. You know, I really I believe strongly in public service. I've always, I've always believed in that. And I think that uh, and public service is a team sport. And, so, and in team sports, the, you don't succeed unless the people around you succeed. So first and foremost, I really look for ways to make you a success. And uh, because that helps me succeed too. You know, so there's a, there's a reflection back on that. Probably my first influence was my, was my father. You know, I remember when I was a kid, he used to say, Peter, if you look in the mirror and the only reflection you see is you, he said, you're looking in the wrong mirror. Uh, he said, you better see all those people who are working around you and, uh, and, working, and working for you and, work, and that you're working for. And, you know, as goofy as – and that's a horrible thing as a kid to hear. You know, you're, really, you're like, no, Dad, this is all about me. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, as I think about it, those simple little things stick with you your whole life. And, then, and that, so I've looked for people who think like that in my career to model yourself after, to emulate – and, I've, uh, and I'll tell you, the other wonderful uh, mentor I had was, the, um, uh, the, at the time, the incoming commandant of the Coast Guard. I was a brand-new ensign, and he looked at me once, and he said, I, I, just, I happened to be assigned as, a, as his temporary aide. I, I was the only available junior ensign around when he came traveling through. And uh, long story short, he said, uh, he goes, you know, Peter, uh, Coast Guard's kind of like this big tree full of monkeys. Uh, I'm like the monkey at the top of the tree, and I look down, and I see all these gorgeous, smiling faces. He said... You, you're a monkey buried in the middle of the tree. And he said, your experience is going to be a lot different from mine. He said, don't forget that. And he said, uh, he said, what I don't see is what's really happening. He said, you do. And he said, remember that if you ever make it to the top of the tree. And I always, I always thought about that. So, so I think about how do you make people succeed? Uh, what are the barriers to success for those people? I think, I think a good leader, first and foremost, says, what do we care about? What's important? Remind people what they've done. You took an oath of office. That's a huge thing. So 
we retook the oath of office across the whole agency when I got in. I said, I said, let's do this. I said, let's talk about what that oath means. I said, think of how powerful it is to swear allegiance to an idea, to a concept. And, then, and think about how powerful it is to do that yourself amongst other people who do that. And then think about what it means to be charged with the protection of this nation and how important that is. I don't think that that's corny to ask people to do that. People really respond to that. They want to be reminded that what they do matters. And then you define for them what you think the culture should be uh, for them. I said, the culture that you, I said, what, what is it we aspire to be? And then you find ways to, to move all those roadblocks out of their way. So it sounds easy. There's a lot of work associated with that, but it's, uh, but it's incredibly rewarding to watch people respond to that. Yeah. And that's how you also get, you, bring, you start attacking the question of how do I feel good about what I do? is you remind them that, that what they did was a good thing mm-hmm. and, uh, and that the public is, is uh, relying on them. And you remind them what, of how powerful it is to be, uh, powerful in, in, the, in, the, in the rewarding sense, to be a public servant, but how, how much responsibility is attached to public service, especially service that the public doesn't always know they want exactly. or doesn't always appreciate. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it even harder, but it makes it all the more rewarding when you can, when you can help people understand why you do what you do. What has been the key priorities for TSA over the last few years? We will ask its recent administrator, Peter Neffinger, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. How is the U.S. Department of State collaborating with Silicon Valley? What is state doing to be more innovative? How is the Department of State leveraging design thinking to more effectively meet its mission? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Zvika Krieger, representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at the U.S. Department of State. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is the recent TSA Administrator, Peter Neffinger. Back in uh, January 2016, you published The Administrator's Intent. And um, would you tell us more about your vision and how it guided or how has it guided your efforts? So let me explain what what that document was. when you're in the military, uh, as I was for 34 years, it's often the case that, that somebody in a command position will, will, will publish what's called the commander's intent, you know, in the, in the sea services in particular. And, and what that is, is it's a, it's a statement by whoever the person in charge is right now that, hey, it's a reminder of what's our mission and why we're here. Secondly, and it's a, and here are the principles that guide me in producing that mission, and here's what I expect of all of you. So... I thought it was important, particularly in the wake of the, the trauma associated with the discovery that we, we had failed a series of tests by the inspector general, uh, all of the public scrutiny associated with that, the multiple um, investigations that had been done on that, the, the congressional hearings and the like, to say, 
Look, let's remind ourselves of, of what we are. It goes back to what I was just saying about, about leadership. So the first thing you want to do is remind people that, that they're part of something good. You know, good people can, have, can make mistakes. Great agencies learn from those mistakes and they become better. And then it was to say, and what are we going to do, and how are we going to do that? I said, let's remind ourselves of the oath. If, you, if you've read that, you'll see it starts with the oath of office. It says, and why were we formed? It reminds us of our history. That's a little bit of culture. I'm, I'm part of something important. It says we're part of a larger enterprise to protect this nation. That's great. And then you say, and what are we going to do? And how, so how are we going to do this going forward? And I said, we're going to do, th- there are three things that really guide me every day. And they're pretty simple. Focus on the mission, because that's what we're hired to do. I'm going to invest in you, invest in people, because you can't do the mission unless you, unless you do something about training the people and providing them with the resources they need. And third, commit ourselves to excellence. We're not just going to just do the job every day. We're going to do it as best as we can. And you set those as kind of like your guide star, your load stars. And you say, that, I may never get there, but I'm going to do that the best I can. And then you build structure around it. So the other thing I wanted to do in the intent is say, and so what are the couple of things that we're going to focus on? So with focus on mission, I said, we're going to retrain, we're going to learn from our mistakes, and we're going to do the following thing, and we're going to build this into the structure. To invest in people, we're going to create a TSA academy, mm-hmm. and we're going to send all the people through that academy. It's going to be focused on this. It'll be a consistent, consolidated, coordinated. And then the excellence piece is, and here's how we'll tie it all together, and we had some objectives for that. So I wanted a, some, some way in, in, in very short order. That's all done in about 14 pages with a lot of pictures, uh, a lot of white space between the words. The whole idea was to say, we matter. We matter for a reason. We know where we're going. And this is how the administrator says we're going to take care of each other. And, and also to put leadership on notice that this matters. And, I, and I'm going to hold them accountable for it. And then out of that flows a whole series of measures that say, tell me how we're doing on each of those mo- measures and on each of our performance objectives. I mean, the, the intent captures your imagination. And I, I really do think that it's an important way to do that. And once you get the imagination captured, then you can get into the details. Yeah. You know what's fun about it, too? And, and this is something that I didn't ask for. I started seeing people took that intent and they pulled pages out and turned them into big posters. And they're all over the agency now. And cascading throughout the agency, people are developing programs based upon focus on mission, invest in people, and commit to excellence. We've created a series of awards that, uh, that say the Mission Focus Award, the Excellence Award, the Invest in People Award. All of that generated out of the, out of the workforce. And so to me, it validates the reason for doing something like that. It says people want to feel part of something important. They want to know what that, how, to, how to define that. And then they will run with it and do things that you never even that just astonish you uh, when 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 you cut them loose. Again, this is this is provide them a way to be successful, and then just get out of their way. So you know, um, to protect the aviation domain, your strategy nests uh, with the national strategy for aviation security. And, and where I'm going with this is, would you tell us more about TSA's strategy for securing? the national aviation domain, and what are the three objectives that frame the foundation of this strategy? Well, I mean, all strategies start with um, what's the strategic environment in which we're operating. So it really starts with a threat-based view of the world. What are the risks in the aviation domain? So if you look at the aviation world, we know that um, that there are groups and individuals uh, that are that have have been and continue to be intently focused on attacking the aviation system. So whether you're talking you know, the, the, the terrorist groups like al-Qaeda or, or ISIL or their spinoffs or just individuals who seem to be motivated or otherwise, uh, otherwise inspired by these groups. 
And that's largely because aviation, uh, if you can attack the aviation successfully, then then you have uh, you create a big psychological impact and, and a huge economic impact, as we saw after 9-11. So we start with that. And we say, what is the current threat environment? And, 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 and what do we think the nature of those threats uh, are against what we know to be the vulnerabilities or, or at least the potential vulnerabilities of the system? So that's the first foundational piece. And then you say, given that, what do I have to do to protect against those threats or things that might spin off from that? And you look at the technology that you have, the processes, the people, um, the nature of the system and how it operates. So the foundational pieces are intelligence about the current system, what your current capabilities are, and then more importantly, an honest and continual assessment and reassessment of system weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And then a categorization of those vulnerabilities in a way that says, where do I need to focus my attention? Not every vulnerability is a high risk, but you want to make sure you identify the ones that are. Getting a little bit away from the vision and strategy and, and, the, and the foundation of the strategy, you recently or uh, you reorganized some of the aspects of the department, yeah. such as the Office of Security Capabilities, OSC. How will that impact or how has that impact the way you do business? Well, let me back up and tell you what I found when I got there. One of the other things, um, uh, as I said, I came out of a, an operating world, and, and I've, I've worked in the operations world for most of my career, whether within the Coast Guard or, or in conjunction with other agencies, law enforcement agencies as the like. I've been an emergency responder for much of my career in the Coast Guard, so I'm used to seeing so – I've worked with fire departments and police departments and um, other military agencies. All operating agencies tend to have – a similar structure because you've got to produce a mission. And that structure is roughly this. You've got to have a way to, first of all, to evaluate your mission and, and your ability to, to manage that mission. It goes back to what I said about what, what do I do about it now that I know and what, what do I already have and what do I need to do it. So how do I get from tell me I got to do something to I got it done and all those things in between. And then you have to have an ability to actually do it. So every operating agency has some sort of a structure that has all the operational elements you know, kind of together. And then they have a structure that has all of the support to the operational elements. And then they have the core that does the operating. What I found at TSA was not that. I found a relatively flat organization uh, with a lot of independent offices. I know there were a good reason for why it was structured that way, but I think it was making it challenging to coordinate operations in an effective way. So I did a couple things. I brought in some outside uh, entities. I I asked uh, RAND Corporation and I asked um, the Defense Acquisition University to come in uh, and take a look at it and benchmark us against other like-type organizations, organizations that have to deliver mission, that have this geographic workforce, that have a large component that that produces a mission every day, and and tell me if there were opportunities for improvement. I didn't want this to be the Neffinger plan. I really wanted it to be something that says, look, there's a structured way you can do this. They validated a lot of my initial, or at least observations, that, that, that there's a better way to do it. So out of that, we created a chief of operations position, and then we coalesced the operating elements, the international affairs piece, because um, uh, they do operating overseas. They do, they do the evaluations and examinations of foreign airports to assess them for, for equivalence with our standards. The, uh, the big group that manages the screening workforce, the, um, you've got the policy and industry engagement piece that's part of operations. You've got intelligence and then ultimately this capabilities and requirements. So I said, you've got to get all that together. And that's what they said. So that study validated that. And then, and then we've also created the a chief of mission support position. We're hiring for that position now. But that will then coalesce all the support elements, human resources and finances and budgeting and 
acquisition and so forth. And then the, the Office of Security Capabilities, which, which used to be both an acquisition shop and a requirements and uh, equipment testing shop, the recommendation was to, to pull the acquisition function out and create the requirements generation process so that you can say, somebody says, go protect the aviation industry. And you say, well, what does that mean? You know, there's a, like anything, you, there's, a, there's a lot of ways you could do that, some probably more effective than others. And the goal is to be able to drive the industry to innovate and create what you need versus go buy what's available. Mm-hmm. And so that's the goal with all that. And, uh, and so that, will, that shop will then be, they, they will look at requirements and capabilities. And ideally what they do is they provide the private sector with an understanding of what is, what is it really going to take so that you can begin to drive that into, into true innovation and, and technology that does what it needs to do. And you kind of mentioned this, but you're also rethinking how you invest the technology in technology to better ensure that, you know, investments are driven by threats rather than a system's life cycle. Can you yes. tell us a little bit more about those changes, both in the area of technology and acquisition innovation, and how did the Innovation Task Force in- get involved in this? Well, let me start with Innovation Task Force because I think the, the rest of it sort of flows around that. I was really concerned that what we were doing was just buying the next thing. What happened is in the wake of 9-11, everyone said, we have got to get in there and fix this. And so in the understandable uh, urgency to get something in place, you buy what's available, and then you do the best you can with it. Well, over time, what happens if you're not careful, that can just be you're just incrementing against the thing that was available as, as opposed to and not incentivizing people to develop anything better. And you haven't really maybe gone back to first principles and said, hey, did we get this right? What actually is the mission? So as the threat evolves, how come we're not evolving the rest of the system? And I think it's because you don't have a process by do- for doing that. And then the other challenge with an operating agency is they got to do something every day. Yes. And you invest a lot of money in doing something every day, lost a lot of effort and talent and training. So it's really hard to get the day-to-day operators to change the way they do it. They're like, hey, boss, this is the way we do it. You know, I'm not going to change. Why would I change? It's what I do. I've got to train. i got to do everything. And so you need a way to, to meter that change in. So I said, we need something that will incentivize, first of all, a way of thinking differently about the future. You gotta, I want to transform the system because any system that's been around in its current form for more than a decade uh, in, in a threat environment is a system that can be defeated. So how do we think differently? How do you evolve the system as, so that you evolve with the threat? And how do you do it in a way that doesn't annoy the bejesus out of your, out of your operators <laughs> by changing their procedures every day? So the Innovation Task Force was meant to be an internal incubator for thinking differently, like a futures group that says, where do I want to be next year? And, I, and an incubator futures group that says, what's available right now that I could feed in? Because the other thing I didn't like was when people talked about checkpoint of the future, it was always five years from now. And no matter when you ask the question, it's five years away. I said, I want to, there's stuff right now that could change it. And the second thing is you need a receptacle for the outside world to plug into. The other problem with most agencies is when the private sector comes in, they don't know where to plug in. And a lot of times you plug into dead plugs. You're talking to somebody who's really interested and engaged with you, but they have no ability or authority or capability to move that beyond. So I wanted to give authority and capability to the innovation task force to actually take ideas and and move them. And then we linked it with the R&D arm of the department, the science and technology uh, directorate, because I said, I've got it. I want to get on the front end of this. And then, and then we want to start looking for ways to incentivize the private sector to come up with new ideas. So we've been around for about um, 
maybe eight months now or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And it has already generated, I think, uh, some really interesting opportunities and some real-world things that are going in place. Then we worked with the airlines to see whether they would be interested in helping to seed the change into the system with some simple things like automated lanes to get us out of the manual system that we were in. And so the uh, United and Delta and American in particular have come forward and put a lot of money of their own money, gifted it back to the federal government. They've bought new screening equipment, uh, automated screening equipment that processes people much more efficiently. It's more effective in terms of its work in. So I'm really excited by what we're doing there because all of that says that now we have a system that we can begin to think about, let's take a look, hard look at our people, our technology, and our processes uh, against the mission that we have to do and look for what, how do we meld all that together into a set of requirements that tell us where we'd like to be versus where we currently are. So I don't have to just go buy the next version of the same thing I already have, but maybe there's something that tran- dramatically transforms it. And then how do I establish some pilot um, efforts around the, around the country that can inform how we might go forward. Are those pilot efforts happening? or They are. Uh, so we've been working with um, uh, a number of airports. Uh, Denver Airport's probably the biggest version of that, where they're looking at completely rehabilitating their main terminal. Mm-hmm. And we've been working with them to, to have them to see if they're interested in rethinking the entire, for lack of a better term, the entire ecosystem of, of security. You know, from reservation to destination, from curb to gate, you know, all of these things that say, how can you get away from just these point elements of security, like a checkpoint, which are a series of handoffs. And instead of just distributing security throughout the system in a way that reduces the friction to the traveler, uh, because that's one of the big problems, stops the bunching up uh, of keeps the smooth flow of people going through, has enough of the visible elements so that people say, okay, something's going on here, but also allows you to reduce, quite frankly, the irritation of security that most people complain about. It's that retail store they don't want to be in. (laughs) So, you know, how has um, TSA expanded intelligence officers in frontline facilities to to improve information sharing? I mentioned that we are uh, first and foremost really an intelligence agency. We're driven by intelligence. Uh, We're not we're not a member of the intelligence community. We have we have great connection to the to the members of the intelligence community and we have people that work with them very closely. Uh, But we ingest that information as a way of understanding the threat. You have to get that out to the front line of the organization. So we've, we've established a series of field intelligence officer positions that we push out to all of the uh, federal security directors across the country. It's about 75 or so federal security directors that collectively manage those 450 airports. And so they all have field intelligence officers. And it provides us with a way to take strategic intelligence, filter it through the, um, the uh, what do I do about it filter, and then move it out to the operating end and say, and in real time say, hey, this is new intelligence that we have, and immediately put it into modifications to procedures or to processes or to actual uh, specific operation. So you mentioned earlier the TSA Academy. Could you tell us more about what it is? Uh, what have you done to create or enhance a curricula? And uh, what, how has your approach to, to training staff ch- changed? I came to TSA, and I was, um, I was surprised to find that we didn't have a, truly a coordinated, consolidated training program. We, we did on-the-job training across a number of, of airports. So if you came to work as a transportation security officer, a TSO, they're called, those are the folks in uniform, uh, you went to one of a number of, one of maybe about 75 different airports around the country, and you did on-the-job training. And, and you got mostly classroom online training, and you got a little bit of on-the-equipment training, but not too much because it would annoy the 
people who were actually actually trying to move people because these were active lines. Yes. And so when we did this, the, the root cause analysis of the failures that the IG had noted, one of the findings was that we had no way to measure consistency across our training. I had a wonderful guy who, um, who was running the training program and uh, I talked to him, and he had, a, he had this really compelling vision for a TSA Academy, but it was going to be five or ten. It was an, another one of those in five years' time. Mm-hmm. And I said, this was in August of 2015, and I said, if I were to tell you that I wanted to send every new hire through a consolidated TSA Training Academy by January 1st, could you do it? And uh, and to his credit, he came back. I mean, it was an injury. I think he looked at me like I was like you're, uh, you know. I I don't think I want this job anymore. Uh, but uh, but we did. We put together what I think was was clearly a compelling business case. Uh, we did a lot of study. We did a lot of work. We worked with the federal law enforcement training centers down in Glencoe, Georgia, and uh, presented it to the administration and Congress. And we got funding to create the first ever full time DSA training academy at the federal law enforcement training centers. Two things that were really important about that. One, it was the first time ever you bring people together and you say, it, it goes right along with what I said about the administrator's intent. Remind them that they're actually part of this. It was, it was telling to me, I talked to a, um, uh, an officer early in my tenure, and I said, so what's it like to work for TSA? And she said, well, I, you know, TSA buys my uniforms. I'm, I'm, I'm here at the airport. I work for this airport. And I thought, I thought wow, that's fascinating. So we need to, so that all that informed this, we got to connect ourselves back to the mission. And so we, we, we completely rewrote the curriculum. We built airport environments down at Fletzi. They provide us with space. Fletzi has been wonderful to work with. You're in an environment in which there are you know, scores of other federal and local agencies training. So it's a, it's a professional environment. They get a course certificate. We're accrediting the course. Uh, but they start with an acculturation. It's, it's sort of like the, the embodiment of that administrator's intent, but they're actually trained to, okay, they take the oath again. They talk about the oath. They talk about being part of the system. They talk about all these, what is Fletzi? Why does the federal government do this? What's it mean to be part of a national security establishment? Then they do hands-on training. So that's about two-thirds hands-on, about one-third classroom. It's on the exact equipment they'll be using, and they run scenarios, and we work. We have, we have volunteers who act like passengers. Some are easy passengers. Some are not-so-easy passengers. Uh, we've got people that bring families through. We have, uh, it's, it's a real-world stressful environment. It, I mean, I've been down there when they do this, and, uh, and it feels like you're in the real thing because these are real passengers. They argue with you. They say, what do you, what, what do you mean I have to get a pat down? Uh, can't you speed things up? I'm late. My, I'm, I'm going to miss my flight. Or the ones who just say are just perfect. So that gives them an opportunity to really practice with it and to see what it – and then they get to go through the experience because, not surprisingly, many of our employees don't travel that much. So they, it, you have to expose them to what it is they're doing to people, too. So it's a wonderful system, and uh, we, we started with just the oncoming frontline officers, and now starting this month, everybody who comes to work to TSA goes to the TSA Academy for some initial training. Uh, so I'm really, I, that's the thing I think is the most exciting. Uh, it's foundational to culture. It's foundational to mission success. It's foundational to connection. But more, and uh, I think it has the most... Uh, potential for transforming the culture of the organization. How is TSA working with international partners on security strategies? We will ask the recent TSA administrator, Peter Neffinger, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, 
eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. How is the U.S. Department of State collaborating with Silicon Valley? What is state doing to be more innovative? How is the Department of State leveraging design thinking to more effectively meet its mission? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Zvika Krieger, representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at the U.S. Department of State. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. The pace of technological advancement is accelerating, while the pace of its adoption is increasing. As we advance through the age of the Internet of Things and autonomous cyber-physical systems, the nation may become more vulnerable to its adversaries. It is within this context that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, through the thoughtful and efficient use of science and technology, works to help ensure the nation's security. And our guest today is Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So, uh, Dr. Brothers, uh, would you tell us more about your R&D efforts in such key areas as uh, cybersecurity, responder of the future, and enabling decision makers? Sure. Uh, So, in our cybersecurity division, CSD, we really think of it in um, of investments in five key areas. Uh, The first is trustworthy cyber infrastructure. Second is cybersecurity research infrastructure. The third is network and system security investigations. Fourth is cyber physical systems, SCADA systems, those kinds of things. Then the fourth, the fifth actually is a transition and outreach. So we have a transition to practice program, which actually seeks to commercialize uh, our cyber programs. And we have, it's been very successful to date. So that's why we think about our cyber strategy. An example of what we're doing right now is, for example, the DECIDE program, um, which is developed by Norwich University with, with funding from us. And essentially, um, it's an exercise tool. It's an exercise tool for the financial industry. It's actually been used in in games to understand um, just how the financial community um, can respond in the case of of some attacks. And we actually had um, a number of uh, 500 participants from 80 financial institutions and government agencies involved in in, in this exercise. So that's the kind of things we're looking at at doing. So it's across... Um, you know, I mentioned cyber uh, cybersecurity research infrastructure. So, what's the challenge here? The challenge is that you need some type of um, test bed to be able to exercise your your potential solutions to understand are these good or they're not so good. 
And so the decision makers have to look at this and then figure out, what does this mean? What do I do about this? As opposed to actually giving he or she some tools that help them parse that, to dissect it, to help them understand what that actually means based on the kinds of things that are going on today. So when you start looking at some of the tools in data analytics and predictive analytics, these kinds of things, you can start coming with tools that actually help the decision maker make these decisions much more quickly. Right? So here's an example of a decision. Let's say you have some type of natural disaster and the consequence of many natural disasters, some, some, some level of flooding. When do you tell people they should leave or not leave? How can you push that decision further to the left in time? So they have more time to make a decision. How do you do that? And those are the kinds of things that we're working with to enable the decision maker. And throughout our conversation, the idea of engaging uh, stakeholders, in particular industry, uh, to partner with them is very important. One of the programs I noted when I was doing the research for the interview is Titan. Could you tell us a little bit about Titan? I can. Um, so Titan um, is an effort to provide essentially a... Um, a toolkit for our program managers. The reason why this toolkit is important goes back to this issue of we now have a much more diversified and distributed S&T ecosystem than we've ever had before, I'd argue. So this toolkit enables our program managers to reach out to our startup world. So we have ties. We work with InQtel. We have a Silicon Valley presence. Um, it allows us to tie into our national laboratories, it allows us to talk, tie into our centers of excellence, our academic institutions. So what I found was that we have these resources, but they're not necessarily tied together and aligned in terms of what they're doing. And I think particularly now it's, it's essential that these are aligned. So that, again, we have these our visionary goals. We've developed a five-year actionable strategy. And now we have to make sure that the tools that we have, the resources we have, our laboratories, our universities, our industries, small, large, traditional, non-traditional, et cetera, are aligned in achieving these goals. So that's what Titan is all about. Titan is about allowing our um, engineers, our scientists, to have a place to go and say, well, here's a problem I'm trying to solve. What are some potential answers? If I go to the laboratory, what do I find? If I go to the academia, what do I find, et cetera? Great. And, and, and with that, the, the story that you've, or the vision that you've outlined for uh, the S&T directorate, uh, you have various things that are going on. And I wanted to, you know, get a sense of educating our listeners as to many of these programs. And one of them is APEX, the APEX program. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how that balances your portfolio? And then how is it complemented by the technology engines? So um, one of the challenges I think that, that we have, and I mentioned a couple times, is prioritization. Once you prioritize them, um, you have to have a critical mass of investment dollars to actually make a difference. Again, we have about $450 million of an annual investment. How do we do a, a, the best job we can of establishing critical masses in the, most, in the most critical areas? That's what APEX is all about. So APEX says, given the visionary goals we have, given the input we're getting from our stakeholders, what program should we have that we're going to invest a, enough money in to actually make a difference, to really make a difference? So, for example, we have, and you, you'll, you'll, you'll see the tie into our visionary goals, we have border situation awareness, next generation first responder, real-time bio threat awareness, next generation cyber infrastructure, 
checkpoint screening at, fee- at speed, rapid, which is actually about flooding. I mentioned flooding as an example earlier. And their air entry and exit reengineering, which is a border enforcement analytics program. So there are, those are our APEX programs. Now, you actually asked about the engines. If you think about um, our mission areas, you can start thinking about different areas that, of technology that are cross-cutting across the capabilities that we could develop in those mission areas. That's what the engines are all about. So if you think about a, um, if you think visually, and on verticals you've got our apex programs, then across those lay these engines. So these engines are areas that, I, to repeat, are these cross-cutting um, technologies that apply to all of our apex programs. In fact, more broadly, they apply to all the mission sets of the QHSR. And that's really why the engines were set up. So I'll give you a couple of examples. We've got data analytics, right? modeling and simulation. Um, an interesting one, behavioral, economic, and social science. Communication and networking. Right? So then there's others. But these are the ones that we have, that we've set up in order to, again, more effectively use our investment dollars. Because while every program uses these, you don't want to have an independent instantiation of these within each program when each program could borrow from these if they're used across all of them. Well, you, you've pointed out that the visionary goals you identified are decades out. You have a strategic plan, which is about a five-year time frame. All of these pretty much give insights into your strategy and how you're going to take S&T to where it needs to be. But none of this will happen, I think you underscore this, without your people. Um, so what are you doing to create a strong or establish a strong and healthy leadership culture within S&T? And how are you addressing some of the employee morale issues you're dealing with? So again, work in progress. Um, I think um, one of the principles you asked me about my particular um, take on leadership is empowering the workforce. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to be more transparent in, in why decisions are made, what decisions are made, and more inclusive in how those decisions are being made. Uh, so we're trying to do that. We've also developed an employee council um, where we actually asked employees to be part of this council and to give recommendations, suggestions, concerns, et cetera, um, so, we can better, we, so we can have a better pulse on actually what's going on in the organization. We've also um, funded a, um, a root cause analysis study to try to better understand what some of the challenges are in areas of morale. And based on that study, uh, we are developing action teams to actually address those concerns that were brought up. We have a, I have a weekly address that I send out to try to communicate what, um, what I'm learning from uh, the front office, from the secretary, deputy secretary, et cetera, and what some of uh, my priorities are. We've set up uh, multimodal, if you will, ways of com- uh, for, the, for staff to communicate back with, with me and, and my front office, some of their concerns. So I think a lot of, a lot of what we're trying to do is, is, is transparency and, and enhanced communication within the organization. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is the recent TSA Administrator, Peter Neffinger. So I'm thinking about passenger volume mitigation efforts, but what I'd like to focus in on is what is being done to increase TSA pre-check enrollment, and what do you see as the future of pre-check? Well, I think, uh, first of all, 
known travelers um, is the is the future of of risk reduced travel. Uh, travel. Uh, so, to the extent that somebody's willing to provide information about themselves, uh, you can you can significantly reduce my concern about you, significantly reduce the risk that you could potentially pose, and you allow the the agency to focus more on the people it doesn't know anything about. So that's the most that's the first and foremost thing. When I came in, we were at about uh, a pre-check population of uh, oh about a million and a half people, uh, and uh, and then there were other trusted travel programs like Global Entry and the like that brought the total up to around four or five million. First and foremost, we started advertising again. Uh, it turns out advertising is really critical. People people actually forget things. It's not intuitive. So we we put effort back into advertising. We we reconnected with um, U.S. Travel Association, the airlines, and others. Said, hey, is there a way to offer? You know, my, use of miles, use of points, use of whatever uh, on your on your various travel reward programs. Uh, so all the major airlines now offer you the ability to cash in miles. They advertise for us as well uh, on their in-flight videos, in their books and magazines, and uh, and then we work with the current vendor, Morpho um, Trust, to to provide more both mobile uh, enrollment sites, more pop-up enrollment sites, and more enrollment sites in general to provide opportunities. We streamlined the online form so that you can get, basically you can get almost everything done except the fingerprints um, well in advance. Uh, We increased the number of, all that says, you know, it was just a pain to get to. I mean, you know, and uh, so we had to make it easier and more accessible and reduce the number of steps to get to the end. So we've got enrollment now up at around, I want to say it's a little over four million now uh, in in pre-check, but trusted traveler enrollment because there was a net benefit to global entry as well. So we're around twelve million now in trusted traveler programs, as opposed to about four million um, a year ago. So that's uh, pretty that's pretty good. We're it, there's a lot more that we could go, uh, but if you think about if you identify a frequent traveler as somebody who travels three or more times a year, uh, we think that being in a program like pre-check pays for itself. It's $85 for five years. For five years. Yeah. So $17 a year. That's not bad at all. So how do you work with your global TSA counterparts in other countries, if you will, um, the equivalent, and collaborate with them in the aviation domain? Are there common challenges faced? Are there unique challenges? How do you deal with it? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And that's the other thing that really um, that, that, that in retrospect I shouldn't have been surprised to discover was <laughs> but the extent to which you need to collaborate globally. It is, it is a global system by definition. Airplanes go all over the world and, uh, and whether they're our airplanes or somebody else's airplanes, uh, they're everywhere and people travel all over the world. So it's not enough to secure your own system. You've got to get the whole system secure and you've got to talk to one another. And global consistency is critical. We're not, in my opinion, where we need to be globally in terms of consistent uh, application of security standards. And I think that that would be that sentiment would be echoed by my counterparts. So I spent a lot of time this past couple of years around the world, uh, traveling to my counterparts, uh, attending the the various international f- conferences of the International Civil Aviation Organization, both the General Assembly as well as meeting with their Security Council, and then meeting with my counterparts at the European Commission in various countries around the world. So I've actually made about, um, I think I want to say it's like 18 or 19 uh, international trips since I've been in here. What lessons, uh, is there like a forum or do you, how do you collect lessons learned from your counterparts? Well, it's interesting. So TSA, prior to my arrival, had established uh, these interesting international um, uh, groups 
that would bring together key partners from around the world. So key European partners as a group with the key European partners as a group with the key Asian partners and, and, uh, and, and others. Uh, what I've tried to do since I've been there is take advantage of those existing groups and then expand their, the scope of their interests and then expand the membership of it to entities beyond just us. I mean, you need the carriers in there. You need the airports and the like. And then to say, again, I go back to what I said before about, you know, the, the best systems are ones in which you try to make, let each other succeed. You know, what you say is instead of telling people what they aren't doing right, talk to them about what we can do together and then share vulnerabilities. So we started by saying, let me tell you what. So I took forward the thing that went wrong with us, and I said, let me tell you what went wrong with us and, and, and the lessons we learned and see if that's, any, if that's helpful to you. And, and what I found is that people were very receptive to that. They said, thank you. You know, we've been wondering. We, we, see, we read the news, too, and we were hoping somebody would talk to us. And what I found is that people started opening up to us about, you know, actually, that could have been us. Talk to us about, you know, we could have had the same problems. Maybe we can start sharing. So I've been really pleased. I, what I find is that there's a huge—think about it. I mean, nobody wants to have their systems attacked. There's a huge demand for, for lessons learned, for best practices, and for ways to do it. I'm really uh, excited by uh, the uh, UN Security Council resolution that was passed in, um, in the fall. So I, had, I, I was really—it was wonderful. I got a chance to be there for the vote. Uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2309, it's the first ever Security Council Resolution specifically focused on global aviation security. And that's, that's huge. Now, the words themselves aren't surprising, but the fact that you have a body like the Security Council, unanimous, yeah. no, no, no abstentions, no veto, no veto, obviously, but no abstentions, unanimous resolution, that's a hugely powerful uh, foundation to bring people together. And, and we're, so we're, we're, we're finding that there's this global demand now to get together to figure out how do we do that. So, you know, as you look back, what are some of the, and you may, you may have just mentioned a couple of them, but I, I wanted, before we close, I wanted to get a sense of your key accomplishments during your tenure. Can you highlight some of them? Well, I think the, the TSA Academy, uh, first and foremost. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so proud of the team that, that put that together. You know, it's a, the other thing I think leaders do, you pay attention, you give people permission to do great things. So that's the part of getting out of the way. I just say... You have permission. You know, uh, uh, leaders can keep things from happening, but I think your job is to let things happen. Let things happen in a direction that, that, that you need to go that's tied to a strategy and an idea, but then just let them roll with it. It's going back to you'd be surprised what people can do if you leave them alone and, uh, and just give them some general guidance. So the TSA Academy, I think, is, is uh, I think the thing that TSA should be proudest of because it will transform the agency. Second, the UN Security Council resolution. We were privileged enough to help co-sponsor that. The UK presented it, but we were a co-sponsor. Uh, I know that I had staff that did a lot of work behind the scenes on helping to shape shape that and to and to work that globally that's huge and it uh, that's a true community of nations that came together to say we got to do something about this i'm really proud of the frontline workforce and what they accomplished this last year i mean those guys remember think about it. these people take an oath of office they do they they take an oath to do one of the hardest jobs in the country and they do it every day uh willingly and enthusiastically and that is the other surprise was to rediscover how really talented that workforce is. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful workforce, and they, uh, and they love what they do, and they, they love public service, and, 
I think they pulled off a transformation this last summer. I mean, we there's a reason why we were able to reduce the the the, the long line waits over the summer without reducing security effectiveness. Uh, we let them do their job. So two final questions. One is about so that was that was sort of looking out yeah. of what you've done. I want you to think about the future. And what I'm getting at is, what do you see as the greatest threats or challenges facing TSA over the next few years? Great question. Uh, let me put it into three basic buckets. The evolving threat, and it really is evolving. I would say it's probably one of the more dynamic periods I've ever seen. So, so staying ahead of that, you know, whether it's the, the traditional things that we think about with respect to terrorists or these, these unpredictable kinds of things that we've been seeing, San Bernardino and Omar Martin down at uh, the Pulse nightclub and so forth. Uh, that's one piece of it. Second is the um, uh, the very challenging federal budget environment. Uh, you know, it. Um, I, I understand all the reasons for it, but when you're working on continuing resolutions uh, year after year, uh, when you get you know three month funding, four month funding, six month funding, it can be very difficult to do the kind of strategic planning for your budget that you need to do when you're in the kind of business like we are, where you need to continuously evolve your system. The planning horizon for that is, is challenging. Um, I, I think the uh, probably the third bucket would be the the need to transform the system while operating the current system and getting buy-in for that because going back to that f- second point about the federal budget, uh, it's an expensive business. You know, I mean, we all wish we didn't have to do what we do for security, but we do for the time being. It's expensive. People like to not have to buy those things more more often, but but you've got to evolve at the speed of threat, not at the speed of obsolescence. You know, if that makes sense. So, what advice, sir, would you give to somebody who's thinking about a career in public service? I would say, look, I, I've spent almost forty years in public service. Uh, I, you know, I'm truly a child of the years in which we were asked not what the country could do for you, but what you could do for your country. As old and idealistic as that may sound, and. I don't think there's any more reward in career, first and foremost. Find the thing that – find a passion and then think about adding value back. It's like, um, you know, what do they always say? You, you, uh, uh, public service is, is the rent you pay for your time here on earth. Well, thank you for coming in. I know you're, you're no, very thank you. busy. This is wonderful. Thanks for and, your interest. And I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I, I've never regretted a minute of it. And uh, – And this has been, this uh, time with TSA has been uh, truly one of the privileges of my career. It's a a great mission, great people, and and they will have my eternal respect and, and thanks. Great. Thank you, sir. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Peter Neffinger, the recent TSA administrator. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in depth conversation on improving government effectiveness for the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
How is the U.S. Department of State collaborating with Silicon Valley? What is state doing to be more innovative? How is the Department of State leveraging design thinking to more effectively meet its mission? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Zvika Krieger, representative to Silicon Valley and senior advisor for technology and innovation at the U.S. Department of State. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.